You're listening to The Sweeper, the pan-European football podcast that brings you all the news from the 55 UEFA nations and sometimes a little bit beyond. On this episode, we chat about the Romanian coach sacked on the day of his mother's funeral, the Pacific Islands looking to revive their national football teams, and the new pre-season winter tournament jointly launched by Latvia and Estonia. Hello and Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to the Sweeper podcast with myself, Lee Wingate, and my co-host, Paul Watson. We've got our usual diverse range of stories coming up on this episode, including some club football stories in part one, some international football news in part two, and a roundup of our remaining talking points in part three. But first of all, Paul, let's get started in Azerbaijan with one of the harshest ever managerial sackings. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So Adrian Mutu, I imagine lots of people remember him for his playing career, Romanian forward. Actually had a fantastic career, caused a fair bit of controversy too. Well, he is or was the coach of uh, Nefshi Baku. And it's not so much the fact he was sacked as the way they chose to do it that has left him feeling a bit hard done by. He was sacked on Christmas Eve, but it's not that. It's the fact he was sacked because at the time... He had just gone back to Romania to attend his mother's funeral and they sacked him, the club, and then expressed their condolences within the sort of we've sacked you message uh, that they put out (laughs) online. Oh, it's really brutal, isn't it? As I say, almost the Christmas Eve thing would have been bad enough. But um, yeah, horrible timing, really. Yeah, what I couldn't work out with this is if he was going to be sacked anyway or if he was sacked because he was absent for his mother's funeral. Oh, no, I think he was going to be sacked anyway. I mean, they've not had the greatest of times with him at the helm there. They're third at the moment, well, well back from the runaway leaders, Karabag. And I think there's a sense that, yeah, it hasn't really worked out for Mutu there. So, no, I, I took it to be that they chose a very unconsiderate time to sack him. It, it does seem really unnecessary to sack him exactly when they did, because now they have this gap you know, the winter break, they have a gap all the way through to 26th of January. So you would have thought, okay, you want to maybe get the new coach in place sort of ASAP, but you think they could have given him just a little bit of time. Yeah. I wonder if he even came back from Romania to sort of clear his desk or if that's it. I don't know. Yeah, I saw this news was broken on Twitter by Emmanuel Roshu. Somebody commented on his Twitter post, I think, saying, couldn't they have just waited like one or two more days? Because that's all it would have taken, really. Like, okay, maybe not one day, because then it's bang on Christmas Day, but hang on for two more days. Yeah, it seems a bit aggressive, doesn't it? Um, I know, I really felt for the guy. That That's just, um, it's poor etiquette to sack someone in that way, isn't it? But um, I'm sure he'll find another job. And I have a lot of time for Mutu, who's a very enjoyable player to watch. So I hope he finds someone who treats him a little better than that. I know it's a very niche story category, but did you know, Paul, that this is not the first Romanian funeral story we've told on this podcast? <laughs> Is that true? I mean, we've only yeah. been going for we've been going for just under a year, and I don't I don't remember another Romanian funeral story. It was the story of uh, Alfred Eisenbeiser Ferraru at the nineteen thirty World Cup. Does that jog your memory at all? The name does does because it's a fantastic name, but now I can't I can't totally remember. 
This was the Romanian player who fell ill on the three-week boat trip back to Europe and was left in Genoa to recuperate once the ferry docked again. A rumour then spread that he died in South America, and so his distraught mother organised a wake for her son, who by that point had recovered and walked through the door of the family home on the morning of the ceremony, causing his mother to faint. That's incredible. That's an amazing story. All it makes me think is that more trips that teams make now should have to be on boats. Players are too soft now. They should do more trips that allow for rumours to start that players have perished en route. That's, that's my view. <laughs> well, I think the internet would probably put paid to that in the modern era. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. this whole boat trip that the European teams, I think there were four European countries that took this boat to the World Cup in Montevideo in 1930. And if you look back at photos of it, where they're like all trying to keep fit by running round and round the deck, all this kind of stuff, it's just, it's absolutely fascinating. It's one of my biggest fascinations in football at the 1930 World Cup. But I'll try and keep us on track today because we've actually got another story from Azerbaijan coming up next. This one was unearthed by our patron, Lewis Griffiths. So thanks, Lewis. It's the story of Toran Tovers sending a cake to every other club in the league. I don't know if you saw this on Discord. No, I didn't see this. They decided to send a cake simply to every other club in the Azeri Premier League to wish them all the very best for 2024. But they're really nice cakes. So they've got like the Turan Tovers badge on them. And then each one is personalized with the name of the recipient club. And they look delicious, but they must have cost a fortune. What a strange gesture as well. Yeah. It's, it's the idea that slightly psychologically you're going to take it easier on them because you think, oh, that cake was really nice. <laughs> I was going to say there's a, another theory that they're just trying to fatten them up for any upcoming fixtures. But <laughs> <laughs> you just pointed out that they've got a month long break. So I doubt it's that. Yeah, I wonder if they are. I'm at 8,000 calories in each one. <laughs> oh, it's a very odd gesture. But again, seems on the surface to be a very sweet gesture. You know who it made me think of? Who is inextricably linked with cake in the football world? Um, no. Do you remember the, the whole Yaya Toure cake controversy? Oh, of course, of course. Yes. Was it he was affronted because the club hadn't made him a birthday cake? Was that it? Yeah, although I feel like a lot of this was stirred up by his agent. So his agent basically slammed the club by saying that they'd only congratulated him on Twitter, not in person, and they didn't get him a cake. But then apparently there was a cake. But basically, all that people ever remembered then about Yaya Toure's time at Manchester City <laughs> was not all the trophies that he won, but the whole birthday cake thing. And I was looking into this online, and he gave an interview to the Times newspaper not so long ago, in which he said, it's crazy, the birthday cake damaged me a lot. When people see me in France or Africa, they ask me if I want cake. <laughs> <laughs> That's an amazing quote. That's absolutely fantastic. It's true. It is a great example of an agent bringing damage onto their, their client. Because, yeah, all I remember really is, not all I remember, but I certainly have a very strong memory of him being adamant about cake. And he probably couldn't have cared less. I mean, I imagine most players in the kind of shape where they're not really going to eat a lot of cake anyway so i can't imagine Torre himself was 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 that angry but that is that's amazing <laughs> we've got another story relating to a former premier league footballer now uh, that's pascal chimbonda and his club skelmersdale who play in the ninth tier of english football this one was also brought to our attention by one of our patrons transponster on discord so thanks very much for that 
And what do you remember of Pascal Chimbonda from his Premier League days, Paul? See, I remember him enough. I remember him playing for Spurs for a bit. I think he had a kind of jobbing Premier League career. You know, he popped up here and there. But obviously, when he took this job as Skelmersdale, that that got a fair bit of press because it just seemed like a, a really unlikely place for him to pop up at the time, didn't it? I think, you know, he's he's a international footballer, just about. Not many caps, I think, but maybe one. But, you know, he was a good level footballer and it's interesting to see him pop up at a club quite that low in the pyramid that was kind of a, a jolt but I haven't it doesn't seem like things have quite gone according to plan for him no I don't think they have so Skelmersdale are bottom of uh, the league at the moment uh, a 2014 league in the as I say the ninth tier of English football but he was appointed as the coach in October and along with a string of bad results he also got sent off I think for leaving his technical area and got a five game ban for that uh, towards the end of last year. Five games sounds like a, a big ban, doesn't it, for yeah. leaving your technical area? If that was the case, Diego Simeone should be banned literally all the time. No, it's ridiculously long ban just for that. It makes me wonder if there's more to it. Was he Was he also, I mean, has he done something else? You, you can't be banned that long for that, can you? That's all I could find online. But the whole starting point of this story is that the ban was then uh, as it was put on Twitter, argued down to three games. I don't know how you argued that, but I presume the club just submitted an appeal. And that means that he's now not available until the 27th of January for the game against Berry. But the story here is that in the meantime, at 44 years of age, he is registered as a player. So he could feature as either a player or a coach in that game against Berry. So that brings up an interesting technicality, doesn't it? If you're a player coach and you have a touchline ban, that means you can play? It was basically framed online as he swerved the ban as a coach by registering to play instead. But that's not the case because he can't play or coach until the game against Berry. Okay, so that that's not like a, a loophole where if you're banned as a coach, you can still play as a player. You're still just banned, aren't you? Whichever way. The frustration for him seems to be building to the point where he's registered as a player then basically that's what's happened he's just watched these guys he's been like no <laughs> no that i'm just going to come back out there and sort it out <laughs> there was a viral clip of him i think in november last year where he swore at his players 72 times during a halftime team talk in a bid to ignite passion and the game <laughs> subsequently ended in a 6-0 defeat so it didn't oh. work <laughs> what was what was the score before <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, actually. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing about Skelmersdale, which uh, really amused me, is that on their website, uh, they have a league table for the Northwest Counties Football League, which is the division they're in. But they only update themselves, basically. If you look at it, they are currently five points clear of Kendall Town at the top of the league, having played 24 games more. Because they... They've literally only <laughs> updated themselves. That has to be a tech fault. That cannot be a sort of psychological ploy, can it? That's sort of a Kim Jong Kim Jong Un style version. Yeah, of the table. That's amazing. <laughs> so you'd be confused if you looked at their website. They're top, but in reality, they are bottom. But I'm definitely looking forward to seeing Pascal Chimbonda return to the football pitch at the age of 44 towards the end of January. Yeah, and I, I do feel for him. I saw that he, he posted just before the end of the year. He said, working as a football manager 
without a budget is really hard. I'll do everything to keep them in the league. And he puts, we will fight until the last game of the season because I have faith and trust in my players, dot, dot, dot. I'm not a quieter. So I think he's accidentally <laughs> written that instead of quitter. But uh, it slightly changes the thing because it seems like he's not very quiet, really. So <laughs> accidentally, I think that's correct. If he does happen to get sacked in the coming weeks, could he, in theory, register to play football in the Vatican? where the player registration window for the 2024 season has opened? No, sadly. No more than I can. So, yeah, the Vatican Vatican City football season is about to start. It usually starts around February, end of February, start of March. And amazingly, you have a cup, a league and a super cup. And registration is open now. They're encouraging people to register. So I was just looking through that Facebook post and just starting to get visions of myself turning out for one of the teams like the archive team or the museums team as a ringer. But no, you have to either be a Vatican employee or the child of a Vatican employee. So unless Chimbonda has a past or has family links that we don't know about, he won't be able to. A question that has come up and I don't know the answer to is when it says a child of a Vatican employee, can that mean a former employee? Does that mean there's like a huge potential pool of people? I think not. I think it has to be a current Vatican employee. But it's interesting because I wonder if that's in a way their version of having a nationality requirement. And if it is, I don't know whether you'd actually lose that right. But if it's not, there's about, I think it's about 3,500 Vatican employees at the moment. So it's a fairly limited pool of people. And yet you said in your tweet at the weekend about this that there are only six teams that entered the league last season. Has that number gone down? I seem to remember there being more. I think it's always around six, as I remember it. There are teams that come and go. So I guess that's what's going on at the moment is they're working out whether there's going to be, you know, uh, a team from certain departments or whatever. There, There seem to always be about six. The Swiss guards pop up. There's a team called Santos, which is the priests team, who amazingly, I believe I'm right in saying, the team of priests star player is called, oh no, he's the archivist. The archivists have got a player called uh, Simone Salvati, like Simon saved. And um, (laughs) Salvati would be the word for like saving their souls, but also sort of just making saves. And then Santos, I think, had a player called Angelini, like Little Angel as well. Mm. So there are some brilliant names in this league. But yeah, at the moment, I think, You'd expect to see teams from Santos, Archivio are usually there. The Swiss Guards are in there pretty much every year. There's the team that at the moment are the powerhouses of Vatican football are Ospedale, Pediatrica, Bambino Gesù, I think it's, it's so, OPBG, which is um, a children's hospital in Rome, which is owned by the Vatican. Their team won the treble last season. So they seem to be the powerhouse, the team to stop at the moment. Yeah, we talked about their treble, didn't we? I think on a pod last year, as well as the Clericus Cup, which is the clergy-only football competition in uh, in the Vatican. We have talked on a couple of other podcasts as well about clubs advertising for players and this whole signing up to play kind of thing. Uh, we've had Kailungo in San Marino offering trials. We had an unspecified Faroese club who we believed to be B36. What is, do you think, for an aspiring footballer, the easiest starting point in European top flight football? Where could you go and get in or have a decent chance of playing football relatively quickly? So I I would say San Marino is a good avenue because the fact is that it's a lot of teams to fill up for 
a relatively small population. And as we could see, there are teams that are struggling to field players. They're putting out calls for players. And we also recently found out, didn't we, that there's quite a lot of foreigners in the in the San Marinese League who are not all Italians. There are also Albanians and, um, you know, players from, from various countries, Brazilians. So I'd say San Marino is an option. An interesting one is, I guess it's probably not that unexpected, but Andorra. And the reason I say Andorra is that I read a book once about someone who was wanting to play football, just one game as a professional footballer. And he had, like, according to him, he was really not any good at football at all. Like, he wasn't even a sort of just failed sort of footballer. He he really didn't seem to say he had any skill at football. And so he went around to various countries trying to see if he could get a trial. And he got a trial in Andorra for a club there. And of all the trials he had, it was my impression that the Andorran side were not a million miles away from saying to him, go on, you can have a go. And according to him, as I say, he may be being very modest, but he seemed to say he had absolutely no real football ability. So that always made me wonder if maybe if you went to one of the like lower Andorran sides, whether you might have a shot there. You did say professional football, though. I'm not sure the Andorran league is professional, is it? No, that's a good point. Maybe he maybe he just wanted to play in a proper football league, I suppose. Like maybe it's like we said, like a, in a top tier European league. Because mm-hmm. you're right. I think it's not. Prof- I mean, San Marino is not professional either. It would be I, I think Andorra is semi-professional, but I wouldn't be totally sure if they're all. There's probably some amateur in there as well. I'd be tempted to suggest Gibraltar as well, because they've got 11 clubs in a territory of six square kilometers that's you know it's a club for every half a square kilometer so you've probably got a fairly decent chance there as well yeah i suppose you probably do i guess gibraltar can recruit from spain and and do recruit from spain and your level against the sort of spanish system would suddenly not look so great but yeah i guess i guess it's pretty obvious that the smaller the country the better your your chances Obviously, no chance in Liechtenstein because they don't even have a league. So <laughs> that would be a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a downer, wouldn't it? Yeah, certainly would. We heard it here first, listeners. Gibraltar, San Marino and Andorra are your best routes to playing top flight European football. That will do for part one. We'll be back in part two for some international football news. Welcome back to the second segment of this sweeper pod, which we're going to kick off with some news from Nauru, which 31% of our patrons have voted for as the main story on this episode. I'll hand this one straight over to you, Paul, as our Pacific expert. Nauru is one of two countries in the world that has never played an international football match. The other one being the Marshall Islands. For years, it sort of seemed like Nauru was going to be this this tiny little island in the Pacific, this island of 10,000 people was going to be the last bastion holding out against football. <laughs> it's actually quite into Aussie rules football. It's a very Australian-linked uh, island, so it's, it's into Aussie rules football. Weightlifting's huge there. And rugby union's actually taken quite a good hold. So it's not like they don't have sports they play, but football has just never really been their sport. This looks like it's about to change because there is a president of the Nauru Football Association. He has now brought onto the board a British person called Gareth Johnson. And he, in turn, has brought in a national coach called Charlie Pomroy to basically start football in Nauru. It it doesn't have a a pitch. The closest thing it has to a pitch is a absolutely rock hard Aussie rules oval that is lethal. I've uh, I went there in 
2018, and I've never seen a pitch more forbidding <laughs> than this one. There is nothing else to play on on the island. Nobody at the moment really plays the sport. There, there was uh, a scattering of interest in it because Nauru is probably most famous for hosting Australia's refugee um, processing centres, and that happened until relatively recently. So there was actually a population of refugees on the island who actually did like football. And so when I went there in 2018, I did play some five-a-side football in Nauru against refugees from all over the world, and that that was kind of an amazing thing to be to be doing sort of in this in this completely unusual setting since they've left uh, there's been very little for football and now it seems that's that's possibly about to change you wrote in our patreon newsletter about the fact that they did used to have a football association of some sorts the brilliantly named or abbreviated nasa so nauru amateur soccer association yeah. and i love that they felt they had to specify amateur which which makes me wonder if it was on purpose so that it could be called nasa <laughs> so what's brought about this change then do you think from from an amateur soccer association to actually relaunching and bringing in a coach what's happened here so for a little while, there's um there's a guy on Nauru called Kaz Kane, and he is keen to grow football, but he personally doesn't have a lot of experience in it. And he's been waiting effectively for someone to help him do that. And so it was kind of a marriage of convenience that Gareth Johnson runs a company called Young Pioneer Tours, I think it is. And they organize trips to the most unusual places on earth. And one of those trips goes to Nauru every year. So he's always been going to Nauru every year on this tour that takes you to the least visited places on earth. Nauru is in the top five least visited countries by tourists. And so Gareth was going to Nauru really regularly, loves football and had this idea, you know, there needs to be a football team here, said, is there anyone on the island who's actually interested in football and found Kaz? And I think it's this final thing of Kaz having someone to then go out and try and get more people involved get some passion get a coach over has has tipped a balance out of inactivity so that this federation that has been in existence but really to be honest just in name is finally hopefully going to actually become a, a football organization i suppose the big question when we talk about some of these far-flung places launching football teams is funding because nauru is not a member of fifa where will this funding or, or the money required to get a football programme going come from? I'm not sure. I think we can expect to see replica shirts turning up pretty soon. Replica shirts have been a really good source because they are a way to make money for teams. It's an asset they can sell. And, um, you know, for the Federated States of Micronesia, that allowed us to, to have this tournament last year. This futsal competition was entirely off the back of shirt sales. But it is very hard to find funding. It's, it's an interesting situation that you have these four nations all relatively close to each other in the world. None of them able to access any sort of structured long-term funding from the game's governing bodies. And so... It's really interesting to see that now there's a balance where there are enough active teams in this region that perhaps it's going gonna, it's gonna to start to bring about um, a meaningful change. And, and I'd, what I'd like to see is that if Nauru, Federated States of Micronesia, Palau and um, the Marshall Islands, if they could get together and say, look, we're all playing football, it kind of feels like this is a time the Oceania Football Confederation or Asia Football Confederation need to actually have a look and say, well, it's it's time to help, really. You mentioned that there are two countries that have never played a international football match before, so Nauru and the Marshall Islands. My logical question is, why don't they just play each other? 
<laughs> well, that is funnily enough, something that uh, we're talking about at the moment. The problem, as you say, is funding. So because the region is so big and because flight costs are so ridiculously high, it's really difficult to get a team from Micronesia to the Marshall Islands or vice versa. It's probably the best chance they have, but it, it still requires about 20,000 US dollars of funding at least because flights in that in that area are so prohibitively expensive so i think i think that is definitely something that's being talked about but it's not an easy fix especially when you look at the fact that to do that you're going to have to sell an awful lot of football shirts if that's your main source of revenue you mentioned Micronesia just there. Let's touch back on the Micronesian kits because you popped up with an announcement on Twitter on New Year's Day that Micronesia has released a series of three new national team shirts designed by Sting's ProWear. They're all absolutely stunning. What's the news here? Well, the news is we're going to be giving away one of each of them. We'll um, let you know exactly when and how that's going to happen. But we are going to give away one of the home, one of the away and one of the third kits. And I do want to say that that these these amazing shirts that stings make they are designed with all the cultural elements of the islands in mind they do a brilliant job on these on these shirts but they also take zero profit so stings will take nothing from this at all they're just doing it out of the goodness of their hearts and so every penny of the shirts that are bought will actually go to to the micronesian team in their bid to to get to a game so i, th I think that's something quite quite amazing really there's not many kit manufacturers that would do that no, that's really cool. And the designs are amazing. So you've got the home one, which is a sort of white and light blue hoop in a wave design. The away one is a, a navy number with Pacific blue stars. And then the third one, I really like the third one. It's sort of an orange floral shirt. Which of those is your favorite design? It's moved, actually. I liked the third when I first looked at them. And now I'm actually really a fan of the home shirt but that said the away shirt what's really special about it is it's got a number of stars on it but it's got four pronounced stars and those stars actually represent the four main island states of Federation of Micronesia so they are Yap, Chuk, Koshare and Pompeii but they're also on the shirt geographically in the alignment they would be on a map it's these little special touches that they've put mm -hmm. in that 99% of people would not look at that shirt and think wait a minute those look those stars are exactly in the locations of the islands relative to each other but it's it's stuff like that, that i really love i think as a as a football shirt nerd and a geography nerd it, it's definitely got my tick so micronesia's last game was this very heavy 46 nil defeat to vanuatu in 2015 that you've written about in your up pompeii blog sequel this money that is going to come in from these shirts is that going to help them then directly to play a first game in what would it be now nine years at some point in 24 yeah exactly if the if the money is enough if enough shirts are sold it will mean that's a that's the thing they can do and whoever they play it's not going to be 46 nil again that's for sure that result did an awful lot of damage to the sport in Micronesia. I, I think in my sort of up Pompeii 2 blogging, I've explained some of the origins of that, the fact that the team couldn't be selected properly because of various political and logistical issues. And so they ended up sending a load of very young kids who had almost no experience while there were much more experienced players on the islands. And that this result of 46-0 probably could have been something more like 15 or 16-0 if they'd had the time an experienced coach and their best players on the on the field but as a result of losing 46 now it really did 
do a lot of damage to the sports chances of growing. So the hope is now to get another game saying, you know, this is this is a fresh start, a new era for football in Micronesia and play someone who is more of the level, whether that's the Marshall Islands or whether that's Kiribati or whether that's a few club teams in Guam, but whoever it is, play somewhere you're competitive and then say, look, you know, it's a long way to get from where Micronesia is to get to where FIFA recognised teams like the Cook Islands or American Tomorrow are. But it is possible. And I think that's the aim here is to, to, to show football can be played by Micronesians without it being a horrible, embarrassing defeat like it was last time. Well, you and me both would absolutely love to see uh, some of these Pacific Islands play uh, their first game either ever or in a long time at some point in 2024, whether it's Micronesia, Marshall Islands, Nauru or whoever. And we will, of course, be keeping tabs on that as well. But as you mentioned there, Paul, there will be an amazing chance to win the Micronesian shirt of your choice if you sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash sweeperpod in the 10 days after the release of this episode. So if you're keen on getting all the perks that come with our Patreon, such as the bonus pods, the weekly newsletters, the Discord, and have been thinking about joining for some time but haven't quite taken the plunge yet, now is the time. We'll be drawing a winner at random from the new members who join by the 20th of January 2024. And there will also be a separate giveaway for everyone who was a Patreon before the episode went out too. So don't miss out by signing up at patreon.com forward slash sweeperpod. We're now going to give Antarctica another mention, Paul. We talked about Antarctica not so long ago because of the uh, micronation of Flandrensis that set up a team there. This time it's a little bit different. I'm going to talk to you about the Iceman of Antarctica, Anders Hoffman, who is an extreme athlete who in 2020 became the first person in the world to complete an Ironman-style triathlon in Antarctica. It involved a 3.8-kilometer swim in ice water, a 180-kilometer bike ride on a glacier, and a 42-kilometer run in the snow and in, in a blizzard as well, all of which took him around 73 hours to complete. This epic adventure was documented in the film Project Iceman, which is on YouTube now and I would strongly recommend it. I know some of our patrons have watched already but the reason we're talking about it now on a football podcast is because Anders has turned to his next mission and in very Paul Watson-esque fashion is now aiming to play international football for Denmark no less. <laughs> so he has moved to Rio de Janeiro to train in the hope of playing and scoring for Denmark at the 2026 World Cup in just two and a half years time. I have to say, Paul, he sounds even more ambitious than you when you moved to Micronesia. Yeah, he sounds, with the greatest respect, pretty delusional. I mean, I, I don't see how he's going to do this. He, he obviously is an incredibly impressive human being, an incredibly impressive athlete. But um, Denmark are not exactly short of, of, of talented footballers. You know, it would be beyond any anything that's ever happened in football before, wouldn't it? It'd be the first person who just wasn't a footballer to be picked for a World Cup. I, yeah, I don't really see quite how how this happens, but I do love his attitude. And I think, I guess if, you, if you've done the sort of things he can do, you must eventually think you can do anything. But this one is surely beyond him, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, that's his motto, limitations are perceptions. So he's basically trying to prove that if you want anything badly enough, you can do it. And I think he is a pretty talented footballer. I've seen some sort of clips on Instagram. He's currently basically spending his time on the Copacabana training with a former tech ball world champion do you know tech ball yeah it's like um it's like table tennis but with a football isn't it you, you yeah know, sort of slope table and it's pretty amazing to watch actually table i've got to say it's, it's a cool thing but I, I don't see how any of any of this surely could could equate to actually getting a, a cap i mean for one thing if he's not registered to a club how's he playing 11 aside football at all you you know you could be as good as you like on the beach and playing your tech mm-hmm. ball but surely he's got to actually find a club that will that'll take him if he's going to have any chance of of getting picked hasn't he yeah i think the time frame is is a huge challenge as well and perhaps if he was playing for a much smaller country it might be a more realistic aim but yeah his aim is to play for denmark at the 2026 world cup so he's got to, got to sort of hurry up and get himself registered with a club do you have any tips for a man looking to make his way into international football pool having having tried that whole route yourself <laughs> um find a find an easier nation <laughs> yeah because you know that was sort of jokingly how the micronesia project started that me and matt were looking for a place that we can naturalize and play for and that's how we kind of have found our way to the bottom of the list i think the naturalization rules are are pretty tight and necessarily so but say he was only setting his his goal on playing in a world cup qualifier now that i think he may be able to achieve but I suppose the challenge would be the naturalization. But the, but there are countries where I think you can spend five years resident, mm-hmm. get get naturalized. So say he wanted to play for East Timor. I mean, besides their sort of problems in the past with playing ineligible players, you know, I th- I think that would be a pretty realistic goal if he if he was committed enough to go somewhere, live there, possibly even marry someone from there. And he sounds like he's a talented enough guy. He would probably pull that off. Do you think, Paul, and this is a question I've not asked you on this podcast before, but if you had not faced all of these sort of issues with naturalization requirements for Micronesia, do you think you would have had the talent to play for the country in an international match? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think I I, I probably did. But you have to bear in mind that's not a huge boast and, and to be, you know, not being condescending to the the Micronesians at that time but you know football had been fairly lapsed so there weren't many people on the island who regularly played the sport so for me coming from a sort of failed semi-professional UK level yeah I think I would have been able to at that time maybe not now because obviously now the kids are much younger than me they could you know they're a lot more athletic than I am but yeah I think at the time I, I probably could have done had had I not met that wall of problems that that uh, we found before we even left before we came on air today you mentioned that you played football just the other day for the first time in seven years um what position did you used to play in back in the day I was a right back because I'd always go into clubs and say I was a right winger and they would find out that I wasn't talented enough but what I would do is just run and run and run all day so now the problem is I'm still not talented enough, but I can't run as much as I used to. <laughs> so I am a, a player who based his entire career on fitness, who has now lost his fitness. Okay. It doesn't sound too promising. <laughs> no, I'm not going to go out and sell myself very well, am I? <laughs> I need a better agent. It was great fun. It was great fun. And actually, as, as a semi-serious note, I think it's really easy to fall out of playing football for people when they reach a certain age. For me, it's actually having kids. It, it 
sort of meant it didn't fit our lifestyle very well and you're often very tired you don't really have the time and the energy but actually if you really love doing something like playing football and you've lost it from your life and you put it back in it's a really really nice feeling actually and um i would heavily recommend it to anyone who's out there thinking like i was oh i'm worried i won't be able to do this anymore or at least not in the way that i want to because however badly i played it was just a lot of fun if you need an agent i know that yaya toure's agent's got an opening <laughs> Well, sadly, cake is probably what's got me to the position I'm in. So. <laughs> and on that note, we will round off part two of this Sweeper podcast and be back to talk about a brand new European football competition in just a second in part three. Welcome back to the third and final part of this Sweeper podcast, and we're going to kick it off by talking about the Livonian League, which is a brand new pre-season winter tournament taking place in January and February involving teams from Latvia and Estonia. And when I read this, my first thought is, why have they left out Lithuania? Because whenever you hear about those countries, it's a three. There are three, aren't they? It's Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, but they've left out Lithuania. Yeah, but the answer's obvious, isn't it? What would you call that? Live Litonian? Lit Livonian? Oh, yeah. Horrible. And also the badge they've created is beautiful. I love it with the two flags, but you put a third one in there. Yeah, maybe it's the colour scheme. Maybe they just didn't think they could make it work in a logo. It's quite an interesting format. So what they've got is they've got three groups of eight, and those 24 teams are the 10 teams from both top flights last season and the top two from the second tier. And they have split them. So essentially there'll be a League A with the teams from both countries that finished first to fourth last season, a League B with the teams that were fifth to eighth, and then a League C with the ninth and tenth teams and the second division teams. And they're all going to sort of only play against teams from the other country. So if you're in League A and you're an Estonian team, you will only play against the four Latvian teams, for example. And the whole point of this, apart from getting preseason practice, is that they're going to tally up the results and see who gets more wins by the end. Is it Estonian clubs or Latvian clubs? That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. That sounds like the kind of competition we would cook up. And I, and I say that with yeah, as the greatest of compliments. Yeah, it's worth mentioning that not all of the teams will be taking part. So the two runners-up from last season, which were Lavadia Tallinn in Estonia and Riga FC in Latvia, they are entering their reserve teams in League C instead because they're away on various pre-season uh, training camps. Uh, Alda, who won the Cup a couple of seasons ago, they have withdrawn from the competition and Valmier will enter a team but then leave halfway through which doesn't seem like a hugely productive way to compete. I love that they're just saying that. Yeah, we'll come for a bit. What do you think about this, though? Because we've, you know, we've talked a little bit on this podcast and there's been talk, especially since the whole Super League thing, about the potential for breakaway regional leagues across Europe. There's been talk of the Benelux one, I think, perhaps being the most likely option. There's also been very loose talk of an Alpenliga, so an Alps league between Austria and Switzerland. Do you think that if like a pre-season tournament like this Livonian league goes well, then countries that generally tend to struggle, especially financially when it comes to football, like Latvia and Estonia, could end up sort of 
setting up a mini regional league or is or is it just a pre-season one? I think there'll always be eyes on it, won't there? Because as you say, the idea of grouping nations together who yeah are geographically aligned who also perhaps are not in the sort of the top tier financially it it keeps coming back and it keeps coming back so if something like this happened and it became a really big success yeah i think surely that would have to be something that people started to moot the fact that you have teams already though not wanting to take part weakens the opportunity of that i'd I'd suggest if some of the bigger teams are already saying they don't want to take part in the competition it's not gonna maybe be as easy to then sell that going down the road i don't want to directly compare the livonian league with the world cup but um (laughs) but here we are (laughs) but here we are you know there were a lot of teams that didn't want to take part in the world cup at the very beginning because they just weren't interested, you know, like the English FA being one of them. So you never know if a competition like this goes well, then in a few years, you know, other clubs want to take part as well. I wonder if it could could be the start of something, especially in a region of Europe where there are so many bankrupt clubs in Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia. You are just constantly getting clubs that are being set up and then folding after that. And it's just not sustainable. So that's what made me really think could this be a starting point for a breakaway league? Yeah, and then that really throws up quite an interesting perspective, isn't it? Because I think, to certain degrees, by the nature that we identify with the underdog, we are quite football purist, uh, I think it's fair to say. But in a case where it's actually assisting nations to make football more viable and keep their clubs alive, it's hard to be quite such a purist. So it's interesting that something like this actually could be a very good thing but it ever so slightly does stray into a thing that that i find quite difficult which is you know change (laughs) effectively Mm -hmm. but you know removing leagues and creating bigger multi-leagues is something that i'm quite uncomfortable with on the whole but as you've outlined if actually what that does is it allows clubs to exist healthily in latvia and estonia where they're not then i guess maybe it's for me to to sort of get over that Well, the tournament will be starting on the 16th of January. So if you're a football fan eager to see how that goes or a Lithuanian really feeling some FOMO syndrome and wanting to keep up to date with the scores, that starts midway through January and runs until I think some point in February with the the seasons starting again in Latvia and Estonia in March. Before we move on to our final story of the podcast today, A big thank you to Memento for sponsoring this episode. Memento is the best way to track football games you've attended. We are total converts and it works across the board for all sports, not just football. It's super easy to add a Memento. You simply search for the club you visited and select the game, personalize it by adding your own photos and thoughts from the match and tagging your friends. And plus, you can now follow your favorite teams and get live scores and updates from their matches and they come through really fast as well in addition to all of that if you download the app soon you'll be able to see our updates from the upcoming Madeiran derby between Marichimo and Nacional so simply follow us on the app at sweeperpod download it for free on iOS or Android from the link in the description below the last story for today Paul is all about domestic cups and uh, I think you wanted to start off by talking about Arandina's request before the Copa del Rey tie against Real Madrid. So this originated from uh, Marca, the Spanish newspaper, and it was about Arandina, the the minnows playing against Real Madrid. And before 
the game, allegedly they'd submitted a list of all the shirts that their players wanted to get, you know, when they exchanged shirts at the end of the game. What I couldn't really understand was that this on this list, obviously lots of them are requesting the same player's shirt. So I what I couldn't make out was I believe the list is real, but is it that they're expecting Real Madrid to go into the club shop and get them eight Modric tops? Because I, I don't believe Modric wears eight layers of his own shirt. But that, that isn't how sh- shirt swapping works, is it? We all know that. You have to take the shirt of whichever opponent player will swap with you. So it was a very odd thing that this came out. And it also, if it is real that they've released this and allowed this to be released, I was actually quite angry about it because I really don't like that. I think the whole point of being a minnow before a game is that you act as if you think you can win it. I think as soon as you start going into a game saying, wouldn't it be nice if I came out with Modric's shirt? You've already given them such a psychological lift over you that it feels like this this is kind of... A really bad idea. So yeah, I I saw that story and was at once confused and weirdly angry. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a pet hate for football fans, isn't it? This whole you know early shirt swapping. Whenever you hear about players that have agreed to swap shirts at half time, there's nothing that gets football fans going quite like that, apart from maybe VAR. So it's bizarre that they did it before the kickoff. And I think, like you say, it's about the message it sends. Really, it doesn't really send a. Um, a serious message when you're hoping to cause an upset it does not it does not I actually oh I had a trivia question for you about Aaron Dina mm. um who would you say uh, that's it's gonna be a tough guess this who would you say is Aaron Dina's most famous former player oh god I don't even know where in Spain Aaron Dina is do I get that as a clue they are in Castilla Leon so they are northwest Spain you're not going to get this by the way it's so that I can make a terrible joke I was going to ask you that question I thought it'd probably be a bit niche because their best their most famous ever player was niche (laughs) okay I've never heard of niche no it's not mainstream knowledge he's a a Guinea-Bissau player (laughs) okay and I was just looking this up yesterday thinking I wonder who's ever played for them saw niche and thought what a great name but their other famous player is Pablo Infante Paul Child yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like you know what can you do who ironically was a late bloomer according to <laughs> which other domestic cup ties across europe have caught your eye over the past few days well poor golden lion mm. right yeah i mean we 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 we've been following golden lion of martinique and their heroic uh coupe de france run and obviously taking on Lille away, it was never going to be pretty. But 12-0 is a, a fairly heavy defeat on their part, isn't it? Feels kind of mean to rack up 12 goals on them after that. It also, I was actually genuinely a bit surprised that Lille put Jonathan David out. They, you know, they put out a mm. strong lineup. They didn't necessarily have to send out quite such a strong team. But um, yeah, hard day for, for Golden Lions. Still an amazing achievement to, to have got there. Yeah, maybe they learned a lesson from uh, the Koye Klaxvik game in the Conference League because didn't they rest some players and then ended up drawing nil-nil? So maybe in a way, Koye Klaxvik were Golden Lions' downfall in this game. (laughs) Possibly. (laughs) I did see someone comment on our post that this was the second biggest victory or margin of victory in a Coupe de France game. And so obviously I had to try and find out what the biggest margin ever between two teams was. 
I don't know if it necessarily is historically the biggest, but it's definitely the biggest from the round of 32 onwards. Back in 1942, Lens beat an amateur team called Orbi Asturis 32-0. And in that game, one player, Stefan Dimbicki, scored 16 goals after reportedly being promised a herring for every goal he scored. <laughs> you don't get enough of that these days. You don't get enough of that. I, I would... <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, bearing in mind this was midway through the Second World War when there was like a strict rationing in place. So getting food kind of makes more sense. But like in the modern day, it just sounds silly, doesn't it? Yeah, it doesn't quite translate, does it? 16 no. herring. <laughs> Again, sounds like another one you sent the agent in. Yeah, I've got your herring for each goal, mate. <laughs> <laughs> of course, 10% of the herring has to go to the agent. Uh, Maidstone in England pulled off a shock by eliminating uh, League One team Stevenage, three divisions above them. They've got to the fourth round. The first team from the National League South to get to the fourth round since Haven and Waterlooville in 2008. I actually remember that FA Cup run. I remember hearing loads on TV about Haven and Waterlooville. I think I was at university at the time. I presume that was their end. Didn't they come up against someone really good? I, I think they did. I remember that cup run. I definitely do remember it i can't remember the ins and outs of it though yeah i imagine in the end they probably did come up against someone someone pretty strong um but yeah i can't remember who it would have been another game that i wanted to mention not a cup tie but i do have a lot of time for matt cullen's tweet about the scottish league two fixture between clyde and bonnie rig rose because uh, this popped up on the sky news like score page as clyde versus bonnie and he called it the bank robber derby, which I had a lot of time for. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, I always like one like that. You know, when you've made a joke like that, you just sit there with massive grin and just wait for your Twitter notifications to never be the same again. <laughs> Anything else you want to add before we round up today's episode? No, I think that was, that's pretty much everything. I think we, we have covered a lot of ground in, in, uh, in that episode, as usual. At the next one, I will hopefully be recording from Madeira, internet permitting, because... Uh, as I said, towards the end of last year, if we got seven new signups on the Patreon, I, I would go to Madeira for the derby. At the moment, I'm having a few problems getting in touch with Marichimo. So I'm starting to feel a little bit like a stalker. I've contacted them on Facebook. I've sent them an email and no reply at the moment. So I think my accreditation request will have to go via Carrier Pigeon next. <laughs> yeah, that's not encouraging. You found it easier to get in touch with more remote places than that as well. You should say to them, you know. We're in touch with Kiribati, we're in touch with Greenland and you make it hard to get in touch with people in, in Portugal. Yeah, when we first started up on Twitter and we were really small, I messaged Santa Clara uh, and asked if they would give us a shirt for a giveaway. And they said yes. And this was when we really had no following at all. So right now I'm very heavily leaning towards the Azores over um, Madeira, but Perhaps that will change over the course of the coming weeks. But hopefully, uh, internet permitting, we will be able to bring you that episode. And that will be out on Wednesday, the 24th of January. So we'll see you then. 